This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. Natural Products Canada, the driving force behind Canada's natural product innovation cluster through support, guidance, introductions, programs, and investment. Hi, I'm Brett, and this is Aditi. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And Ludafisk. Welcome to the show. Brett, can you explain, was it Ludafish? Ludafisk? Ludafisk is what Stephanie has uh, corrected me on early on already. I think it's Norwegian. I'm not totally sure. It's often around the holidays they roll Ludafisk out. It's like a pickled fish dish that is not very good, if you ask me. Super gelatinous. Oh, which is not a great word. Ludafisk, oh man. Who knew we'd be talking about Ludafisk on this episode today? Well, let's talk about economics. Did you guys take a lot of economics classes in college? I did. I took lots of economics classes. Steph, what about you? You know, I I think I only took one economics class undergrad as part of my journalism degree, but I then obviously took a whole bunch for my MBA. Did you take any as part of your journalism degree? As part of journalism, I took a business reporting elective and then I went to business school and I did take a couple of economics classes in undergrad where I was a political science major. But our guest today not only studied economics, but that subject ended up being a guiding force in her career. Kelly James is the founder and CEO of Mercaris. The company is a market data service and online trading platform for organic non-GMO, and other certified agricultural commodities. The company's mission is to communicate data like prices, volume, and other stats for commodities that have environmentally beneficial attributes. Now, Kelly can chat about the limitations of markets, but she also makes a compelling case about exchanges and data transparency making the organic food industry more efficient and more accessible to everyone. Which brings us to our question of this episode, which is, can data fix food? And what we mean by that is, can exchanges truly democratize food and boost sales of commodities that have environmental benefits? It was a fun show. Whoa. Yeah, it's super cool. I've always been a big believer in like free market economics in general. And when you think about the food system and sustainability as a topic, it's like, will the free market push people to fix things fast enough before the world destroys itself. And so it's like one of those areas that I think you can make very strong arguments that you need not just free market economics to play a role in, but certainly like transparency and price. I just thought Kelly was so brilliant and it's such an interesting topic and just her thoughts on exactly what Brett's talking about were great to hear. Yeah, and she explained everything in such simple terms that everyone can understand. Really cool stuff. Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. A huge inflection point for cultivated meat. Upside food, which makes meat from cultured animal cells, just moved one step closer to selling its products in stores. The FDA recently went through the company's pre-market consultation and had no questions about the company's assertion that its products are safe to eat. Now Upside is working with the U.S. USDA on labeling and inspection. Guys, this feels like a pretty watershed moment, is it? And do we have any idea what this means for any timeline in going to market? From like a timeline of going to market, I don't know. Like this is a big moment. Labeling and how you're going to label cell-based 
alternative proteins has always been a big question. Like, do you have to label it differently than traditional or not? Because it's kind of the same thing. And so once they get that ironed out of like what labeling requirements are in the United States, that's going to be a big deal. But I think like the biggest holdback for cell-based proteins is still cost. Can you produce the protein at a cost that is competitive to traditional methods of growing that protein? That's still going to be the number one holdback. And I think one of the things that Brett mentioned and that is so important with this FDA ruling is all about labeling and consumer perception, right? Because that's one of the reasons that people don't want it to be called meat is they don't want it to necessarily be perceived as a true alternative. It's its own category. It's its own option. And so I think what will be interesting to see is if having some of these regulatory approvals that we're used to seeing in food actually makes this more palatable to the average consumer. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the next development. Well, next, Costco CFO recently suggested that the $1.50 combo of a hot dog and soda will stay put despite inflation. He said that some businesses are doing well with margin and that helps them hold the price on the hot dog and soda, quote, a little longer, forever. Hmm. Guys, I know, Brett, you're a huge Costco lover. Is that a draw for you? Love Costco. Aditi, how many $1.50 hot dogs and sodas have you had at Costco? I mean, I can't even count, right? I love hot dogs and I love Costco. And I love low prices. Brett's favorite place. I started going to Costco when I was a little kid. There was like one of the early Costco's was in like my hometown growing up. And at that time, it was literally like a hot dog stand, like a street vendor style hot dog stand that had $1.50 hot dog and canned soda at the time. And that was 30-ish years ago. And so they've had it forever. I mean... I think it's super cool. I think they'll continue to have it for maybe forever, for my lifetime. I don't see it changing. It's a lost leader. Internally, they have all these studies. And so every time somebody walks into Costco, they have this number and this metric that says, every time a person walks into the Costco door, this is the value to Costco. We make 25 bucks or 30 bucks. I don't know what the number is. So they say, okay, if we lose a dollar on every hot dog we sell, as long as they walk in the door, we're going to make 25 in the store. It's all about customer experience. Ah, which is Wonderful at Costco. Well, speaking of customer experience, Axios is reporting that entertainment is on the rise again after a three-year pause from the pandemic. The outlet says that investment dollars are going into venues that offer chef-driven dishes alongside Instagram-worthy decor and arcade games and activities like darts, ping pong, and shuffleboard. Some examples, the pickleball craze has given rise to chains like Smash Park and Chicken and Pickle. And there's also Putt Shack, an upscale mini golf restaurant chain. The trend is pushing legacy chains like Dave and & Buster's and Chuck E. Cheese to jump in popularity. Guys, do you go to these sorts of places? Have any of these open near you? I haven't been to any of these particular ones yet, but I think that it's a trend we're only going to see continue, right? You have to do something different to get people out of the house these days, whether it's pickleball or putt-putt or whatnot. Is putt-putt still around? Brett seems like a putt-putt guy. I don't mind a good putt-putt. No, I enjoy places that have entertainment. Honestly, it's as much for the kids, though. We go to places all the time that have something that you're not just sitting at a table. If we're going to take our kids out to dinner, we want to go somewhere that has some sort of entertainment, whether it's like a shuffleboard or an arcade game. Absolutely. Well, coming up, we'll talk to Kelly James about her pivot from riding horses for a living to working in the Obama White House to starting her own company. Markets and data transparency may sound like dry subjects, 
until you hear Kelly James talk about her life's work. Kelly is the CEO and founder of Mercaris, a market data service and trading platform for organic agricultural products. Over the course of her life, Kelly saw the power of exchanges in addressing social or climate issues. One example is how cap-and-trade programs solve the problem of acid rain. And now, Mercaris is bringing more transparency to organic markets by providing farmers, processors, and consumer packaged goods companies with pricing data for organic foods. Mercaris is also a trading platform for organic commodities. In providing that transparency, Mercaris helps remove the hidden cost of those foods and could help incentivize more farmers to switch over to growing organic crops. While it is hard to imagine Kelly working on anything but market economics, that subject seemed pretty distant from her childhood dream of riding horses for a living. I grew up in an army family. My dad was military. My mom was, you know, the back-end support for the, for the family. Moved all over the place. I actually, both my parents are city folk, grew up in the Bronx and, you know, New York City, Long Island. And then when my dad joined the army, they were moving all around and a lot of army posts are in very rural areas. So my sister and I found ourselves working on farms quite a bit as we were growing up and we just loved it. And I specifically worked on a cow-calf operation when I was a teenager. This whole time I was, you know, riding horses because, interesting side story, army bases often had horse stables on them. And so you could ride, even though horses has a well-deserved reputation as a very expensive sport, it was basically subsidized by Uncle Sam. So we could ride for pretty cheap and it was just something that we could do no matter where we moved. And so like through this, I kind of got closer and closer to the ag sector more broadly didn't realize I was setting myself up for a career path later on in life. And where were some of the places that you grew up and found yourselves riding these horses? So born in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, we weren't there very long before moving around everywhere from mostly in the Southeast kind of area, I guess, if there's a pattern to it. Fort Campbell, Kentucky. We were out West at Fort Bliss, El Paso, Texas. So that's about the farthest West we were stationed. And just sort of back and forth. I, I have friends in the Army who moved. Their average was, you know, one move a year. We were once about every two, three years. I remember you telling me how just deeply passionate you were about riding horses. And did you think that that would end up being a career path for you? Oh, yeah. That was my first love. I mean, I was from the time, I think I was three years old when I begged for my first, you know, horse and ride, riding lesson. <laughs> And was riding, you know, had ridden ever since I was a toddler. Ended up, I told my parents, in fact, so I I first started out riding Western. Think about like, you know, the big saddle, the horns, and even worked, like I said, came in handy working on a cow-calf operation. And then sometime around, I don't know, when I was in middle school, high school, I started riding English and riding jumping horses. And I loved it. And I also got jobs with really good horse people. So I rode with a woman by the name of Margie Goldstein Engel, who is an Olympian, one of the best riders this country has ever produced. I worked for her and rode clients horses and just did everything I could just to get better as a horse person. There's something just magical, amazing about it. I'd also, when I was in college, I went to University of Kentucky, not for the basketball or for the academics. I went because it was the middle of horse country and I exercised racehorses and a little money on the side. 
So all of this was very exciting, but it ultimately led to my, you could either call it downfall or just like a new path opened up because I was riding a client's horse. I had just graduated. So I had graduated school not even two weeks before, done graduation, was going to ride full time. This was going to be my, you know, my new life. And your parents were okay with that? Well, I think, you know, what happens when you get someone who's obsessed with something, whether it's an entrepreneur or riding, what do you do? It's like a force of nature that you can try to get in the way of or you can just, you know. So they accepted it. They accepted it. <laughs> you know what? You graduated. We, that was our minimum standard. You did that. So I got this, my dream job was traveling all over the country riding, I was riding a client's horse and was in a competition and the thing flipped over on me and I broke my back. So I just, 1,200 pounds of horse came crashing down. And I tell people I broke the horse's fall. The horse was fine. I broke his fall, but I broke my back and tore my knee up. It was a thorough, complete job. So I ended up having major surgery. I was six months of physical therapy. I'm very, very fortunate that and I'm blessed really that I was able to walk away from it after surgery and physical therapy and whatnot. And because I don't learn, I just went back to riding after that. So I got a job with a trainer in the Netherlands, fantastic barn and horses in the Netherlands and the Dutch ride, you know, they ride at another level. And I did that, but I closed out the year and I thought, oh, I don't think this is it for me anymore. I think it's so hard to come back from a major injury. And all of a sudden I started looking around and seeing like older riders, like IE in their forties and fifties and going, huh, a lot of them are walking with a limp. <laughs> They'll seem a little bit slightly injured. And I just thought, well, that's a glimpse of my future if I keep doing this. And so I came back, I pivoted in true startup sense, went to grad school without a clear idea of what I was doing, sort of found myself on this path of entrepreneurship when I ended up working for a startup right out of grad school. So, What had you studied in undergrad? Spanish and then economics. And when you went to grad school, did you continue with studying economics? I did. I did an MBA and then I also did a master's in international development because I thought I was going to go into like community economic development. I thought, well, you know, how can I be useful to society and developing countries where I, and I had Spanish as my background. So for example, when I was in grad school, I did uh, an internship that turned into a consulting project with coffee farmers in Central America. And so I got a really close look at the impact of volatile coffee markets, my first you know, introduction to commodities. And what it did, how it impacted people's lives on the ground. And the project I was working on was, you know, how do we get better hospitals or schools or whatnot? But really, because of the MBA, the natural question was, well, how do we prevent this volatility? Or how do we at least weather that volatility? And there are ways you can hedge volatile prices. And so the idea that you would, could apply markets to that problem was fascinating to me. And as a side, half the problem with the growers I was working with anyway, was that it was not just the markets were volatile, it's that they were growing a very low quality, kind of lowest common denominator coffee, the stuff that goes into like your Folgers crystals. <laughs> Meanwhile, there were these very exciting markets developing in organic coffee, fair trade coffee, single origin coffee, like those of us that are like, oh my gosh, I don't want to just drink coffee. I want really good quality coffee. And how do we get more producers into those markets? And the markets that can produce other than just the financial benefit, there's maybe an environmental benefit, there's some other attribute that the market can solve for other than just price. It just led me in a whole new direction and was ultimately responsible for what I'm doing today. How quickly did you kind of uncover that link between commodities and making a real impact? 
Well, I think that's what attracted it to me initially. I, like I was never maybe like your true commodity trader that's just like, how many deals can I get done? And I was always intrigued by the fact at the same time, there was a lot in the news about carbon markets. So this is like definitely a little bit of a walk down memory lane, but the first now climate change, you can't escape it. It's in the news. It's impacting all of us. But 15 years ago, 16, 17 years ago, there was a brand new startup tech startup called the Chicago Climate Exchange. And I joined that group right out of grad school. And the whole idea was you can take a derivative futures contract on carbon and you can let people trade a carbon futures and that will help reduce, you know, it puts a price on carbon. Before it was free. You could pollute as much as you want, no cost to me as the business owner, as the consumer. And we were saying, let's put a price on carbon. There's actually a very, there's a cost to this. It's not just get out of jail free. We're more heating up the planet. We're causing all these impacts. And markets are really good at pricing things and price discovery. And then once you know a price, you can apply some rational decision-making around how do I reduce it for the least amount possible? How do I make money? If I reduce carbon better than anyone else, I should get paid for that. I'm performing a service. And so this was a way, this was a 1.0 way of reducing carbon emissions. And was that startup sparked by cap and trade? It was. It was. You know, cap and trade is not a new concept. This is a little bit before my time, but acid rain used to be like take the headlines just like carbon does today. And it was caused by burning coal. And we in the 90s, the Clean Air Act in the 90s, the U.S. instituted one of the first cap and trade programs for acid rain. And so if you were a coal fired power plant, you could either continue to emit as usual and pay the fine you could invest in low carbon or I'm sorry, low, you know, acid rain, uh, low sulfur technology and then and meet your target internally. Or you could buy from someone else who was able to do it a little bit faster and it reduced the cost for everyone. And the, the result was the results speak for themselves. Acid rain is no longer a problem in this country. And a large part of it was that those markets provided the tool that just unlocked the ability to reduce emissions at the lowest cost possible. So cap and trade is a tried and true tool for those types of things. That is pretty remarkable, right? Because I remember growing up as a kid and reading about acid rain, and you're right, at some point it did go away. And so what an incredible lesson to us all about the power of markets and exchanges, right, to be able to do away with those social ills. And so you are at this climate startup. And tell us a little bit about the work that you did there and then what you did after that, too. When I was doing my thesis, I interviewed the founder of the Chicago Climate Exchange, and I was just fascinated. Sometimes you just know. You're like, ah, this is going to be, this is a thing, and I want to be part of this thing. I would not have described it as, oh, my first step into entrepreneurship. I just was attracted to the mission and the mechanism of the the company. So I made myself just enough of a nuisance that they had to hire me. (laughs) It just became this real-world education because pretty typical for startups, you get in there, and I was officially, my title was economist, but that's on paper. In reality, you're doing everything from like figuratively taking out the trash to coming up with new products to a startup is just this great excuse to get your hands into all sorts of things. And I also met my co-founder there, my future co-founder, who was a software engineer and just had a similar outlook on life that I did. And so we, we hit it off and didn't know at the time that, you know, fast forward seven, eight years and we would be starting a company together. So... So you learned about the power of an exchange, right, in addressing social issues. You sort of have this entrepreneurship uh, kind of planted in you, but you didn't quite go 
there towards founding your company right then and there, right? Yeah. I was like, how in the world am I going to do this and still continue to like live under a roof and four walls? I was like, I'm not trying to be homeless and start a company. So I was kind of mulling it over. But meanwhile, I had this fantastic opportunity come up and that was Obama's campaign. And I had done a little like get out the vote. I was very excited by his campaign, like a lot of folks. But then when it ended, I was like, oh man, how do I stay involved? And I applied to a program called the White House Fellowship. It's been around for about 50 years. Each year they take 15 or so young professionals from across the country. You go live in Washington, D.C. and you work for the administration doing all sorts of things. My own work that I did there was actually on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So that just kind of consumed the government for a little while. And I had you know, a small role to play in the, the response there. But it was fantastic. What I thought I was going to do was get a front row seat to watching cap and trade legislation pass. So I thought, okay, I've kind of looked at this from the private sector point of view, the startup point of view. Let's see what it looks like from the government side. Instead, I had a front row seat to watch the thing just die. I mean, it just the legislation that would have launched a, a national cap and trade program just fizzled out. And it was a real lesson to me because, man, once that signal, the threat of legislation was gone, the whole market unwound practically overnight. What had taken five years to build unwound in six months. So it was interesting to me and I, it was a lesson I've never forgotten. And so at the end of my year, the fellowship program is only one year. Then I had a decision to make. There was no more Chicago Climate Exchange to go back to because the whole thing unwound. And yet I had had this idea kicking around in the back of my mind about this market called organic food, which had been around since the U.S. regulated it 10 years prior, was really starting to grow. And I felt it needed some of the same tools that these other emerging markets needed and existing markets have, which was you know, good price discovery, good rigorous economic analysis, a way to trade those commodities other than picking up the phone or blasting out like thousands of emails. And I thought, well, what a perfect application for both the technology, but also just the knowledge that had acquired over the past, you know, almost decade at that point. What prompted you to start Mercaris then? I wish I could say it was like I saw a vision and like went courageously into battle, but it was a combination of the Chicago Climate Exchange was no more. There's nothing to go back to. I knew that my time in government, the fellowship is really not meant to, for you to stay there. It's meant for you to go there, learn, and then get out. I don't know. My husband was like, look, you know, you talk a big game. What are you going to do? A little bit of a dare. <laughs> and you'd already had this light bulb moment about the organic market and that it wouldn't have the challenges that carbon emissions did, right? That you could solve for this. Right. The U.S. government had said, we hereby declare this is what organic is. Now I thought, well, that's great. I just need to go out and cover it. And did you and your co-founder come to that decision at the same time? How did you both decide to forge ahead together? He was my first sales pitch because I said to him, hey, Chris, so back up a little bit. I finished the White House Fellowship and he had had an idea to start a white label exchange. So remember, he's a programmer. He was like, let's just, I don't care what people trade. I just want to build the software for people to trade anything. Will you come co-found with me? I was like, ah, sure. You know, and it gave me an excuse. I joined what was called the Accelerate Labs. Now it's Techstars Chicago. So an accelerator program. And I had done an old school MBA, plenty of accounting, plenty of finance, very little startup. And I don't think you really escape the MBA programs now without thinking about startups, but back in the day you could. So I was like, oh, now I'm learning about term sheets and how to pitch to investors. And so a three-month boot camp to do that. 
And Chris's idea, which was like a lot of things, it was a fail fast sort of thing. We got to the end of it and said, eh, this is not going to work. So we just kind of shut it all down. I said, look, Chris, I feel now like there's no excuse for me not to launch Mercaris. I've co-founded on your company. It didn't work. Come be the co-founder on my company. We'll raise some money and we'll get started. And that's precisely what we did. So that was 2012, 2013. And so it's 2012. You've decided to start this company. What do you do? Well, in true academic form, I mean, now I see why serial founders are are highly sought after because I had to like go through just, you know, I could have shortened the time to launch. First thing I did was like a good grad, former grad student, I wrote a white paper. So I wrote a paper on why it should exist. And it was like an 80 page white paper, laughably long and ridiculous. It's amazing. That's a dissertation. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. The sort of method to my madness, though, was it gave me an excuse to talk to a lot of people. Ag can be a really insular community. I mean, it's old white guys, a lot of it. And here I was, this youngish, younger black woman, you know, asking these questions. And so a lot of times what I found was people had a soft spot for folks that were like really asking questions and trying to research. And so I kind of used it as a little bit of a cover to get in and, and meet people, have these conversations. And those people either became my early customers or some of them became early investors. So once I had completed the paper, I said, okay, guess what? This wasn't just an academic exercise. We think based on a lot of your answers, we could create this. It doesn't have to be hypothetical. And so they were the early community of supporters that helped me launch. We raised a seed round of right at $800,000. And then I think our first built out the version 1.0. And I think we had our first paying customer in 2014. Did you start in grains and oilseed right away? Did you know that those were kind of the areas that you were going after? And if so, how did you decide that? So part of it was our own DNA and, and background. So true commodities markets are fungible. They have you know, well-standardized specifications. That was our you know, experience. So grains and storable commodities are the logical first step. There's, of course, all sorts of organic food products, spinach and apples and whatnot, But I didn't have any background in those sort of perishable types of commodities. Neither did Chris. And so that's why we started out there. Early on, how did you deal with like the two-sided marketplace, right? Like, you know, everybody that starts a marketplace, you have supply side, demand side, which was harder for you to drive to the platform. And give us a little bit more insight on like how you did that and how you got there. Yeah, that's such a good question because marketplaces are tricky things. So the first thing is when we pitched to investors, we were like, we are a market data service. We're also a trading platform. Most investors heard trading platform and that's what they were excited about because it's easy. It's intuitively appealing. But I will tell you, even from the early days and especially now, 90% of our revenue is the sale of data. Trading is a de minimis in terms of our revenue. We use the trading platform to help us discover price. So if we're out there and you and I, Brett, are buying and selling organic wheat, If we do it on the Mercari's trading platform, that gives us a price that we can immediately push out into our market analysis. And so we kind of monetize it twice. We charge a transaction fee and then it goes into the reports that we we sell. But the main way we discover price is actually we run an, an online and electronic survey every week. We get just reams of data in from folks that are out there in the market buying and selling. They don't ever come to our trading platform. They're just doing that. You know, they pick up the phone and talk to a farmer write a contract for organic wheat, and then they send us the data. And in exchange, if they give us data, they get information and analysis for free. So in some ways, we have not solved the liquidity problem for a marketplace. We recognize that we need to be a data source first. 
One of the fundamental challenges in organic food is accessibility. And I know that that's something that's really important to you. Can you describe for people who aren't familiar with these market forces and how exchanges work and all of that, how Mercaris and the work that you're doing, both with data transparency and with the trading, how does that help alleviate that challenge or address it? It's a hard question because I have people in my family that can pay whatever they want for, you know, a pasture-raised organic egg. And I have folks that are on supplemental nutrition assistance and the, you know, everything in between. And organic has a reputation, rightly so, of being more expensive. It was more true 10, 12 years ago. Now, actually, organic prices have come down closer overall, closer to conventional. But I have looked at it in a couple ways. One is, I love that it's an economic concept of externalities, which means if I get that cheap organic milk, you know, it's just, I just need the rock bottom price. Financially, it's cheap, and that's what some people need. But there is a price. It's a hidden price, just like the carbon emissions were a hidden price. So, you know, we're all paying the price now for heat waves and forest fires and whatnot. But if we are dumping chemicals into our soil or into our waterways, if we're exposing farm workers to chemical pesticides and fertilizers and destroying their health, if we are, you know, destroying the ability to harvest oysters in the Gulf of Mexico because so much of this ends up in our waterways and kills fish, there's a cost to that. It's just I'm not seeing it in the price of a gallon of milk or a dozen eggs. What organic does is it takes those costs and you see them. It unhides them. And then the second way I look at it is if organic is expensive because you are using more farm labor to kill weeds rather than chemical pesticides, that's one thing. At least that's a real cost. But if organic is expensive because nobody knows what the price should be and somebody gets to gouge someone else because they, you know, they have asymmetric information, that we can squeeze out of the system. That's inefficient. That benefits nobody or very few people. And so that's Mercaris's mission is to make sure that those transaction costs are as low as possible. Do you think that decision of farmers to shift from traditional to organic is largely financially driven because they can improve their own livelihood or is it mission driven? That is a great question. I love hard numbers. I don't have a hard number for which is the bigger shifter, but I mean, farmers are business people at heart. It's always partially a financial decision because there's lower input costs. You're not spending all your money on high tech seeds or chemical fertilizers, which are owned by just a couple of large companies. Your input costs, your cost of production is lower. And then on the other side, you're selling for a higher price. So financially, it means that there's a phrase in U.S. ag for a long time has been like, get big or get out. Unless you're willing to, you're willing and able to farm 10,000 acres, you're not going to make a living. Organic farmers are on average half the size of conventional farmers, and you can make a living with a smaller farm. And I think that has something to do with it. It also has something to do with, you know, where you see organic farms being viable in, in states that traditionally have smaller farms. As you look towards the future, what variables or data are you looking at to know that you're succeeding in your mission? Well, I mean, the ultimate data is a profitable company. For me, the ultimate is like, it's an existential thing. Can we make enough money? Can we grow fast enough, our revenue grow fast enough to justify the investment that has been made in us? So that's like my North Star. However, I always take into account, is the sector better off with us or without us? It's not just a sales pitch because that's the first thing a customer asks is like, if we try to sell the, you know, General Mills, General Mills says, I've got a successful business without Mercaris. What are you going to offer me that I'm not already doing myself? So we're always asking both at a micro level, at a firm level, and then at a, at a sector level, is the sector better off for the work that we're doing than it was before? 
And then there's all sorts of ways to slice and dice that, but that's the big question. And your answer to that question is? Yeah, yes. <laughs> and the flip side of that is we've had people that were afraid. They were like, why should we work with you? Why should we trust your data? We like knowing things that other people don't know. Like there's always a bias against transparency or people that are saying like, I'm making my money because people don't know the things that you're telling them. And so we have, I can say, you know, with eight years now providing data, there is not a single company that has gone out of business because there's more transparency in the sector, not less. And I'm just curious, those naysayers out there who actually wanted to keep that information more private and in fewer hands, are they now buying your data? Oh, yeah. Some of them are our best customers now. We just have customers, people that are not customers yet, companies that are not customers yet. They will be. They just don't know it yet. (laughs) We have a series of questions. You get one word answers and one word only. Aditi and Steph don't get to say anything here. My say of whether you were right or wrong in your answer is the final say. That's how we roll on this one. Everybody's shaking their heads at me. What's the prize? Yes, there is a prize. You'll find out about it in about 10 years. Okay, let's jump in. We're going to start with the horse portion of the interview. What's the best horse name? <laughs> oh, man. Man of War. Best racehorse. Man of War. I didn't say what the best racehorse was. I said best horse name. I'll give you half credit on that one. All right. Okay, I think everybody agrees on that one. When was the last time you were on a horse? A year ago. In a while. A year ago. Mm, man, getting rusty. I'm impressed that she's been on a horse even though she broke her back on one. What's your favorite climate change movie? Oh, man. Oh, shoot. What's the name of the... Day After Tomorrow. What's your favorite type of bagel? Plain. Plain bagel. Oh. Correct answer. The everything bagel is the obvious choice. This is an ongoing dispute. No. Ongoing dispute. All right. What's your favorite 80-page or less book or paper? Oh my gosh, 80 page or less. Jeez, that's a really hard one. (laughs) It's not your own? Yeah, well, it's not 80, it was like 88 pages, so it doesn't qualify. Uh, All right, I will restate the question. What is your favorite 88 page or less book or paper? (laughs) All right, yeah, it's gotta be. What's the toughest commodity to collect data on? Oh man, I think it's, Right now, the toughest thing we're doing is Durham wheat is really hard. The reasons are just it's a small crop. So anything that's small is hard to get good data on. If you were an entrepreneur out there right now looking for a place to start a company to affect change, what commodity would you work on? Plant-based proteins. All right. We're going to get you out of here on this last one. What is the best army base that you've ever lived on? Oh, man. Fort Campbell, all the way. Fort Campbell. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here at Tatiana Freeman, the CEO of Nash Posh. Tatiana, what's the problem that you're solving? I created Nash Posh in an effort to expand access to healthy meals and snacks. And so I want to be able to expand the way that people access these products and just make convenient, healthy options more accessible. How are you solving that problem? 
We have a couple of kind of more creative vessels for how we distribute products. So that would be our fresh food vending machines, our corporate snack program, as well as our snack subscription box. And we're also looking at some point at doing checkout free shopping experience or maybe an automat idea, which I'm really excited about. So do you make the food itself or do you, are you going out and finding food that fits your box or fits you know your mission of healthy food and getting healthy food to people that don't have access to it? No. So we actually source from BIPOC and women-owned companies. So I don't have to produce anything, which is a godsend because it's such a tremendous effort to you know take a product from concept to production. How are you going to take over the world? Is that the plan? Yeah. So um, the thought is kind of this reimagining of healthy convenience and just being able to, regardless of your location and your socioeconomic status, provide healthy, exciting, globally inspired flavors so that you can feel good about what you feed your family. Today, I'm here with Paul Meyer, the CEO of Athian. Paul, thanks for joining us. What's the problem that you're solving at Athian? The big picture problem we're solving is we're working to move the needle on climate change. And I know that there are a lot of folks that are working on that specific problem. I think our particular perspective is really driven by the commitments that large scale organizations at the end of the food value chain have made, the commitments they've made around their greenhouse gas footprint. And specifically, most consumer packaged good companies, retail companies, and food service providers have made commitments that look essentially like we're going to cut our greenhouse gas footprint 30% by 2030. We're going to get to net zero by 2040 or 2050. And then the big question is, especially for any company that sells or processes livestock products, it's how do we actually get there? What's our plan? What's our strategy? And that's where I think a lot of those commitments fall down. And that's really the big problem that we're solving. Turns out that is a data problem. That is, they don't have clear visibility to their supply chain. They can't effectively baseline and quantify where their suppliers stand. Well, how are you solving this thing? You know, there's a couple of ways that we're solving it. I think the short answer is that we're fixing the data and visibility problem throughout the supply chain. The longer answer is that animal agriculture is uniquely challenged because it's incredibly diverse. Really, the way that we're attacking this is we're building out a software as a service platform that connects consumer packaged goods companies, retail companies, food service providers with packers and processors, dairy co-ops in the middle, and then extends that connection all the way through to the producers who supply all of these products. So it's a pretty comprehensive and big bite that we're taking. So you have a platform that connects so everybody's information flow can actually flow between everybody versus getting lost along the way. What's the big vision? How are you going to take over the world? Well, the big vision is that this entire process is largely ad hoc and paper driven. Ultimately, you've got to talk about carbon credits, right? Carbon credits is the way that you fund all of these processes. And once you solve the problem of the data and visibility, then you've got to apportion the costs so that producers, and in this case, farmers are the producers, so that producers can fund interventions on farm that are gonna move the needle on climate change. So going back to the question, can data fix food? What are your thoughts? I think to the point that transparency could help fix food, that data is obviously gonna be a huge part of that play. 
I mean, I don't know if it fixes it. I think data will make food and the food system more effective and efficient. Like the role data plays is to make us more effective and efficient, which should reduce food waste all the way to should help the end consumer be able to find the food items that are right for their body type. Like I think data will play lots of different roles in it, but it, to me, it makes the food system efficient and more efficient than it ever has been. Awesome. Great show, guys. See you next week. We'll send you some Ludafisk. Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.